0: But also this concept that, that it is part of you, right? So you can't decide that one part of your body is, as an example, autistic and the other part isn't. You know, you are who you are and this becomes very much a part of your neurodivergence and the identity that you give that. And that was what I took away from the conversations and how it was explained to me. And once that was that explanation was there, I just got it. It just clicked. Yeah, I get it. And, and I think that's really important. As neurotypical, as someone who does not identify as neurotypical neurodivergent the language and the wording and what is important to the neurodivergent community is really important for us to be able to understand so that we're actually driving the right outcomes and we are respecting what is important to the community and and I think that's critical so I think it's a fascinating topic and I think I think we need to listen to why Those nuances, what might appear to be nuances to us in language, are actually so
1: important to the community. Welcome to Princess in the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity with those who know it best, lived experience, of course. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health, and more, but all with a NeuroSpicy lens. Today's episode, we've got Natalie Phillips-Mason, who is a strategic change management practitioner. She is also a vocal ally for neurodiversity in the workplace and the customer experience. As many of you know, this show is for my fellow neurodivergent kin. And even though I mostly like to have other neurodivergent folk on the show, I do also think it's important to include neurotypical allies, those who don't identify as being under the neurodivergent umbrella, and to have really important and sometimes difficult conversations that really need to continue in order to progress to a society that is truly inclusive and neurodiversity affirming. So I'm very grateful to Natalie for coming on the show and to have an ally who is also an expert in change management. Thanks for joining us, Natalie, and agreeing to come on and talk about allyship and how we can have these really important conversations.
0: Thank you. And um, how exciting that you thought that I filled those, um, you know, big allyship shoes. So I'm very, very grateful for that.
1: You do. No, thank you for coming on. We primarily talk to neurodivergent folk, but I think allyship is so important. You know, we we can't get to a point where true diversity and inclusion exist without having both teams on the same side. I think it's so important. And I, I love the, the work you do on promoting neurodiversity. So thank you for all your efforts and advocacy.
0: Oh, it's such an exciting um, opportunity. I genuinely feel that, particularly in this country. There's a, a lot more that we can do in terms of discovery and education and, you know, implementing some initiatives within, within workplaces that um, actually have long-term impact for so many people and probably we shouldn't talk about them so much as initiatives because that's a point in time, but you know, you've got to start somewhere so we can absolutely have the dialogue and it's, um, I, I love the topic and I love being invited to talk about it. So thank you for inviting me along.
1: Oh, brilliant. No, I love it. And I think just for our listeners, we're going to have some more hard conversations, I think today where, you know, we want this to be really genuine and we're kind of going to pick each other's brains on on yep. our own experiences, lived experience and allyship. And I kind of wanted to do this because these conversations are so important. And this is such a personal topic to so many of us, uh, whether it's yourself, who's neurodivergent or a loved one. And there can be a lot of disparity in understanding what people prefer in terminology and inclusion. I think it's so important to be able to have these conversations, even if they are a bit uncomfortable. And I mean, knowing how much of an ally you are, Natalie, I'm sure we probably have very similar views and experiences. But even if we don't, that's not necessarily to say either side is wrong, but it's so helpful for people to have these conversations. And I know that our wonderful listeners will probably be having these conversations in everyday life. So I'm sure they'd appreciate hearing it first.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to share as well. So this is a very much, as you say, a two-way conversation.
1: Yeah, two-way, definitely. Yep. Definitely. All right. So I thought maybe we'd start off with the basics and talk a little bit about identity first and person first language, a little bit of a hot topic in the community. And I'll preface this with sort of where we're at right now is it tends to be a preference of parents of neurodivergent kids to use person first language. And that's usually because, well, one, the medical model uh, of disability is very deficit-based and they don't want that to define their children, which I completely understand. But at the same time, the majority of the autistic adult community have quite uh, an affinity for identity first, which stems from wanting to take back their identity and be proud of their neurotype and not see it as a deficit that, you know, the pathology model Says it is. So both sides are coming from such a good place. And I'm curious to know your experience in hearing people talk about this and how you've had to think about it.
0: Yeah. So um, it has definitely been a theme that comes up in forums I've been attending, or, you know, talks I've attended, or um, conversations I'm having. And it's taken me a little while to get my head around it actually and you know I think I think that's a good thing because I think what's happened is I've had to go through a process of educating myself as I am in in the topic in general um, despite observed experience there's you know what it's taught me is there's still so much that I don't know um, and so much oh, more to learn us, all of us. Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because language often comes up in conversations I have and because of my day job, which is is change management, you know, language and the words you, you tend to choose around how you define a change program or, you know, how you build a narrative around, around what it is that you're doing and, and how you're changing and what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, those words and that language are always kind of important. So it's not a new principle to me. But in this space, it's been really interesting because I haven't gotten it first off. I I had to really sit down and think about it and actually ask. And that's what I did. I asked people in my network who are neurodivergent, can you explain to me why this is so important? Genuinely explain to me because I'm not quite sure I'm getting it.
1: Such a good question. Yeah, I
0: mean, this is a thing we forget. We can actually ask, right? Yeah, like we don't definitely. have to just pretend we understand and move on. It's actually better that we ask. So that's what I did, and the explanations that came back were fantastic. And I went, I get it, amazing, I get it. And 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 it actually comes up so often, and the narrative that and the responses that come back from different people around these, to your point, are a combination of you know the community wanting to take back what they feel has kind of you know they haven't necessarily been able to to guide and control and drive the the narrative around but but also this concept that that it is part of you right so um you can't decide that one part of your body is as an example autistic and the other part isn't you know you are who you are and this becomes very much a part of your your neurodivergence and the identity that you give that and that was what I took away from the conversations and how it was explained to me and once that was that explanation was there I just got it yeah it just clicked it just clicked yeah I get it and and I think that's really important because we need As neurotypical, as someone who does not identify as neurodivergent, the language and the wording and what is important to the neurodivergent community is really important for us to be able to understand so that we're actually driving the right outcomes and we are respecting what is important to the community, and and I think that's critical. So I think it's a fascinating topic and I I think we need to listen to why those nuances, what might appear to be nuances to us in language are actually so important to the community.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: I think the opportunity we have is that particularly at the moment we've got this little perfect storm of, of kind of conditions, environmental conditions, if you like, where I think there are more young people entering the workforce who have that pride around their identity in all sorts of elements, all identities. Um, and I think that's the other really interesting for me about um, neurodiversity. It's it's just intersectional, right? So you don't, it cuts across religions and, and ethnicities and socioeconomics and gender. And it's just at the end of the day, it's about the brain as opposed to anything else. But I think, you know, that's why I'm trying to add my voice to it proactively because I think we've got to look beyond What we see on the surface, and we need to go back to basics on um, talent and skill strength and ultimately what we can do to make sure that people can work and earn a living and um, do their best work regardless of what pathway they choose to take, and that it can be done safely, and that we can appreciate that there are all of us. Think differently at the end of the day it's just that some you know some people will need some different kind of accommodations to be able to do their best work but but I I don't even know that that is really the best description to be honest anymore I just think that's definitely part of a system-based view but but I don't think that should be the focus I think at the end of the, the day it's actually around um how do we make sure that people are able to get employed for the skill and for the worth that they have and the, the, what they bring to the table as opposed to their ability to fit in a, in a particular environment? So I think that's one thing. Um, I think levelling the playing field in terms of how we source talent, recruit talent, performance management is obviously a very important part of the conversation, but again, it's not the be-all and end-all. Of, of the conversation. I think ultimately it's the belonging aspect to it. And I don't think that belonging piece is for one neurotype or another. I think everyone deserves to belong and everyone deserves to to live and to work and to shop and to go about their daily lives in the best way that they can. So I think for me, from a workplace perspective, that's where I have a high degree of focus. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, how do we treat these conversations in a way that we can just start to build a kind of business as usual model around this so that, you know, this doesn't become a one-off checking in, making sure you're okay with your headphones type conversation. And it becomes more around when we're looking for talent, when we source talent, and when we bring people into the workplace, that it's that we build this kind of universal design around what works for everyone as opposed to what just works for a 10 percenter and i'm not an expert in any way shape or form on universal design i've got a couple of people in my network who certainly are but you know the concept of universal design is actually really important and this um
1: yeah yeah no i i love that you said i was literally thinking about that while you were talking (laughs) i was like i love the concept of universal design in in the sense that i think You know, shifting away from how people with differences are seen as kind of a burden, like regardless of whether it's a neurodivergent brain or a different ethnicity or gender, you know, there's definitely a role to play in supporting these people break barriers that truly exist, no matter how visible. But at the same time, if we're creating a world and workforce Mm. where universal design is our focus, it will naturally catch those outliers While at the same time, not focusing on them needing more help potentially, which I think comes into a very complex web when we talk about trauma and we talk about mental health and we talk about invisible Mm, disability, mm. where it is so hard to say, say, and I have probably said it multiple times on this podcast, I love the saying, you don't know what you don't know. I also use that quite a lot and it's scary what you don't know. And it's why people recruit and promote people so similar to them. It's what they know. It's safe. And we're all now discovering that that's not always the best, which is great. Like, it's the next step is actually embracing the discomfort and having the conversations and figuring out what that truly looks like in a practical sense, which I think is really where the focus on universal design comes in, because I would love it if we were helping everyone and not just people who, like, very outwardly advocated because there's many of us that one don't know we're neurodivergent like I didn't for 28 years of my life or two have things that maybe don't have a label and why should they be any less allowed to speak about what would make them the most supported mm. you know physically and mentally healthy employees or humans mm. Uh, I think, you know, everyone deserves that right. And if we start allowing people who maybe don't have any sort of overt diagnoses, whether that's physical or mental or neurodivergent, whatever, then having those conversations more broadly in work will allow for those of us who feel like we could be discriminated against. I I talk a lot about recruiting and I love that There is a lot of focus in helping make recruiting more accessible. But one thing I constantly hear get thrown around, which is important, but I think there's a problem with it that's not being addressed, is asking people what their accessibility needs are. And I think that is really good, essentially. But with a caveat, uh, and feel free to pipe in because I'm still, like, rolling with how I feel about this, but my my latest thinking around it is, You know, I've slowly become more vocal about my own disabilities. I have a physical and multiple uh, cognitive disabilities and I'm noticing I'm getting people asking me more frequently when I say attend conferences or, you know, at work what my accessibility requirements are. And it honestly pulls me up because I've spent so much of my life not being asked what would work for me that I'm almost like, I'm not sure, (laughs) like I am sort of, but I also don't want to ask for that because you'll probably think poorly of me or, you know, it's the whole stigma and Mm. unconscious bias. You know, if I, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example. So if I was going to do an interview, I'm pretty good with interviews. I think uh, it's quite common for autistic people to talk about how they don't like the interview, but I actually don't like the selection criteria written part. Cause I'm also dyslexic. I actually find that harder than the interview part. We all have our talents, but at the same time I have very poor working memory. And in interviews, I'm obviously more anxious because socially I am heavily masking. It's just kind of a reaction to a lifetime of not being interpreted correctly or nicely, uh, And you know, there's pros and cons to that because I can kind of pull off being neurotypical sometimes, uh, but at the same time, it's at a very heavy cost of cognitive energy. So one thing that I would think would help in an interview would be to maybe have the questions given to me beforehand, whether that be 10 minutes or a day or at the very least have a physical copy of the questions in front of me, because when I'm asked questions, especially if they're anything more than a very short sentence, I can very quickly forget what I was asked or start answering and go off on a tangent because I've already forgot the main point, which does not mean that I'm not good for any job or that I'm not intelligent or anything. It's literally just one system, one part of my brain that I struggle with, and there's a very simple fix. But in asking for that accommodation, I don't know, walking Mm. into an interview, what that culture is like, what those people are like, what their experience of this stuff is like. And if they've got a very biased view or a very ignorant view, and ignorant I say ignorant in the terms of not knowing, not ignorant as in like they don't care. I just mean, you know, you don't, you don't know you don't know. Are they going to read into that? Because I have had a career where I've been in very competitive job interview processes and I've got very competitive jobs that most people would struggle with and i just i think that we need to have more of a conversation it's not just about asking what accessibility you need it's it's really it needs to be deeper than that That's very surface level and we need to feel safe enough to be able to say i i would really like this whether it's the questions or whatever it is without thinking there's going to be ramifications because we all know about unconscious bias yeah i'm interested in your thoughts
0: Okay, so my initial thoughts are this is going to take time because this is, (laughs) you know, like any um, behaviour change, this is...
1: Says our change expert. (laughs) Very important. Well, it's just the way
0: it is, I think, you know, and I don't think we... I think we just need to lean into that first and foremost. The first, I guess, was a question back to you is you know, would you not feel comfortable asking for those questions in writing beforehand? To me, that would give me an indication as a candidate as to whether an organisation is actually um, genuinely able to, uh, you know, to accommodate that sort of process. So that in itself gives me a little bit of a view of, you know, how the organisation potentially the flexibility within the organisation, I mean, that flexibility in terms of, you know, process and in terms of how they look at. um, But again, that's a very broad brush brush statement because I think there are still, this is a dialogue that is still so immature in this country. I think this is where the education process, you know, needs to continue. Um, I I would, from where I sit, I wouldn't have an issue providing questions in advance. So to me, that wouldn't give me... But again, I guess I've got a lens on this that, that maybe is a little closer to this topic than other people. But to me, providing questions to people in advance is is not that difficult to do. Um, but the question, that what, what's probably more um, of a complex component of what you described is... I don't know if there will be ramifications. I don't know if people will think that I'm strange by asking for that. I don't know. if, And unfortunately, you know, that's not something I can answer because it's so specific to to the organisation. I I, I think the only, you know, my, my gut feel around this is, The more candidates who feel comfortable enough to ask for what they need, the better it is that we are educating organisations. Because at the end of the day, um, the voice has to come from a number of different areas. And there are, look, there are, like, like there is in so many other, you know, spaces, organisations have different levels of challenge. They have different objectives that they're trying to meet. um, And, you know, this is probably just going to be a keep sending the message and keep asking for what you want, because the other obviously the other difficulty in this space is um, the lack of disclosure. And and so, you know, as in with a lot of other D and IB strategies, there are there's data in a lot of cases. You know, we know in organisations we can get data on gender diversity, we can get data on First Nations diversity. um with something with neurodiversity, we can't because whatever we get is not necessarily going to be accurate. Because we know that disclosure um, is very hidden; not everyone discloses, and not everyone even has a diagnosis. But you know, the stats and the data that we have in this space are not necessarily—we we just don't have as much of it as we would in other spaces. And so, I think that's why it's got to come from the neuro you know, the neurodivergent candidates so that, you know, but then that I I can say that quite easily because I've never had to ask of it, but, but, you know, just from where I sit, I think the more candidates, particularly in the current market, let's be honest, the more candidates say with all the different conditions we've got going on, you know, this is um, all those other environmental conditions, you know, I would suggest... It's a great time to be able to ask for what you need, but then I know that there is a lot of psychological safety, risk, and mental health—you um, know—implications that come with that. So I'm, again, I'm not an expert in this space and don't claim to be. There's a there's a whole complex system of of issues that come with this, but purely from a, a candidate going through a recruitment process, you know, I, I mean, ideally, Utopia will be, we get to a point where. You're comfortable to ask what what you need, or um, you know the candidate process offers a range of alternatives. It says if you don't necessarily want to be on camera, we're happy to do this via phone. So we've got to look beyond what we see into what we believe the talent is that sits within the people that we're talking to and that we're interacting with. And again, that's a simpler view of it, but that's kind of sometimes simple is better. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, no, but I think. I think both sides of the coin, you're right. It's, you know, it's not just getting organizations to change. It's us almost forcing the change by, you know, coming out, but then there's also the aspect of, um, you know, privilege and, yeah, yeah. uh, all of the, th- all the things, but, uh, with disclosing, especially, uh, I've recently disclosed in my current role and there's been not even a second thought about doing it because I'm at a point in my life where it's not a big deal if it goes badly. <laughs> um, but if I was just starting out in my career, I would definitely be more reluctant because then there's also like the financial implications and, you know, there's just, there's so much that affects more than just mental health and And, you know, psychological Mm -hmm. safety and, but at the same time, I think it is kind of a good way to almost test the waters for the employer, because if they respond well to accommodations, then that's a place I would want to work. But if they don't, which would mean I probably wouldn't get the job, then it's probably for the best, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about because, you know, we need to be in these organizations changing the culture and we need to be in those ones that probably aren't as accepting the most. But at the same time, for our own health, (laughs) you know, it is probably good to have that sort of knowledge before you walk into a role. Yes. But at the same time, that is truly a huge privilege to even be able to take that risk when we do live in a world where even though this is becoming more talked about, it's still very much a subject of discrimination and unconscious bias and ableism and you could never really know how it will go.
0: Yeah, look, I think that's one aspect of it. I also think, um, to be fair, from an organisational perspective, um, certain roles, you know, require certain, um, not just certain skills, but, you know, if you're going to be, for example, in a customer service role, you're going to want to find candidates who, you know, are comfortable interacting with customers. So different roles require different skills, um, but I think what we're talking about is something broader than that. And I also think there's some opportunity to not pigeonhole people into certain buckets either. So, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there around, for example, autism and STEM stuff. And, you know, we know that that's not true, but we know that that is an area of hyper-focus and and intense interest and, and intense talent, no doubt. But not every autistic person will love data and numbers. But the creativity that comes from from a number of people that I've um, met and worked with, and it is extraordinary. So again it's it's not necessarily what we we need to be careful not to pigeonhole in terms of content and in terms of job type and in terms of interest and and skill. You know I guess I have a question for you if I can turn it on you for a second is it okay if in your opinion is it okay for for colleagues to be able to um approach someone and say you know what I think you're you know can I help with something or I noticed x or is that a form of allyship or advocacy that would be appreciated I guess is a question and I'm just asking you and not the entire community but I almost feel like people you know this is this is a space where um, people might need permission to be able to support so I think it I think it's would be a valuable question to ask
1: yeah yeah no I'm always happy to to share my thoughts and they are my thoughts not the communities which I definitely want to clarify but uh it yeah it's a hard one because. So many of us are on different parts of our journey, whether it is that we don't know about our own neurodivergence or whether it's where maybe we haven't accepted it or Mm. we haven't got to the point where we're proud of it. And I actually get a similar question quite a lot from people reaching out saying, Oh, I think that my colleague is ABC. Um, What do I do? Like, how can I bring it up? And it's such a hard question because. I don't necessarily ever give advice to bring it up because personally, I don't think we could even make those calls. You might be seeing traits that you think fit autism, but they could be something completely different. Um, and that person yep. getting called out, it's, it's a very shocking thing if you're not prepared for it. And so I guess to your question yes. about, is it okay to see if people are okay and ask for help? I you know, I, I think everyone would have a different view on this, Um, but for me and thinking about maybe before I was diagnosed in the workforce and didn't realise, like I knew I had differences and I struggled with certain things, like not liking phone calls and that sort of thing, uh, I think if someone had approached me and said, you know, something like, I don't even, like, you'd have to be very careful about how you framed it because if it was anything other than coming from a place that was very overtly compassionate and helpful, then, you know, you're immediately going to get someone get defensive or, I mean, in my case, I thought I was heavily masking those things. So if someone called me out on it, I'd probably be very... (laughs) shocked initially that people have noticed, but essentially like it would definitely be a good thing. Like for instance, I, and and it's also things to listen for. So I asked one of my first supervisors, he told me to find some information out and I said, oh, uh, can I send an email? And he said, oh no, just call them. And when I asked, can I send an email? What I was asking was Is it okay to use my preferred method of communication without asking that? He could not have known. He did nothing wrong. It's those subtle, and this is where I like to talk about psychological safety, because this type of question and this type of relationship within a team comes from a place of having colleagues and supervisors and staff that can trust each other, So, which I'm sure you know, of course. Uh, but for me, the teams that I've been that have be- been in that have been the most, uh, you know, inclusive, I guess you could say, are the ones where you always felt safe to ask questions and you always felt like your opinions wouldn't be dismissed or laughed at. I mean, on the flip side, I guess, the environments that are toxic, that do not promote inclusion and diversity are the ones where... You can't speak up without getting either snapped at or judged, or you know it can be as extreme as getting work taken off you. Like I haven't had these experiences myself, but it can be very subtle and nuanced. Like uh, there was one job I did where I, I liked the role and I did well, and there was not really a big issue, but there were just little things that over time I I would it was obvious that I was getting excluded from the the you know relationships within the team you know I didn't I don't watch The Bachelor don't judge me anyone who's listening and this team loved The Bachelor and because I didn't and I couldn't force myself to like it even because I knew it was like a social necessity that's not how my brain works I was excluded heavily from the relationships that are developed alongside working and that isn't a big deal right but at the same time it it shifts that level of feeling included and accepted. It comes back to everything you said about people having the right to feel valued and and like they're a part of the team. I mean, this is a this is a silly example. This is a basic example, and it happens on a much deeper level um, to many people. But it's something that when I've been in other teams and I've noticed someone being missed or someone being left out. Because maybe they don't like the same subject or they're not familiar with what we're talking about. I make a conscious effort to help bring them in. But this team was so ignorant to that. And I just think that kind of shows how much of a lack of diversity there is in places like the legal profession. Because workplaces I've worked at that are more diverse, this is far less of an issue because everyone understands that feeling of not fully belonging, and it's like we look out for each other. So I guess what are your thoughts on that?
0: So, yeah, so, so I guess um, I guess the other side to that is what's your advice around how to be effective allies, you know, or how do we best support and and what does that look like based on everything you've just described, which, you know, which is all part of the... You know the, the very real um, elements of of um, of this topic, particularly in the workplace. So, so what does positive allyship look like in the workplace? Because I think that that you know that would be really helpful for for people to understand.
1: Mm, definitely, and you know, to be honest, I haven't I haven't thought that much about it just because I'm so much on the other side of of from like doing advocacy and and helping people learn to advocate for themselves in this space, um, but it is a good question and it's something that I really do want to think more deeply about. But you know, from what I could imagine, being something that I would appreciate is it wouldn't be the overt allyship. Like, I think there is an element of of really being overly connected and overly um, promoting any sort of diversity is very important and should definitely exist. But at the same time, I think it needs to go hand in hand with the subtle allyship. And that can be sort of, as you said, like, I noticed you do, you're struggling with this. Can I help? Except without framing it like that, you know, if you notice that you don't necessarily have to approach that person and outwardly say, you've noticed it. You could easily come at it from a different angle, you know, whether you're, you're their supervisor or colleague and you know, put your hand up to do that work in the future or maybe say to them, oh, I've finished this job, do you need a hand with something? Make it really open and really not obvious that it's a specific issue because, again, it's that taking it away from focusing on the weaknesses and the deficits and just focusing on helping everyone uh, and being team players. Uh, but on a deeper level, I think it's also – and this, you know, comes back to culture and and psychological safety at work, and and even the shift around people being much more aware of mental health in the workplace since COVID happened, is showing up authentically and getting comfortable with, I guess, airing your own struggles because everyone struggles. Like it's not a neurodivergent thing to struggle; <laughs> it's a human thing, and we all have strengths and weaknesses and you know like many of us who believe in the neurodiversity paradigm we don't see we don't see symptoms and red flags yes. we see traits we just their personality traits their cognitive traits whatever you want to call them so you know it's like if if someone's confident you can look at that and think oh wow they're confident but someone else can look at them and go wow they're cocky and arrogant So it's just the angle you look at the trait. Uh, And I think you can do that with all traits, truly.
0: Oh, absolutely you can.
1: Yeah, so it's the human element. And I think uh, my husband and I talk about this stuff a lot because, I mean, it's my special interest, so he never gets the end of it. And he loves arguing and debating, as as do I. So we love to talk about all the possibilities and, and all the issues and really question our thinking. And the one thing that I... I really admire in his own approach to work. Um, And obviously this is only from everything I've heard (laughs) as I've never worked with him, but he is, I know his personality and he is a very genuine, very uh, with, with much humility, you know, he's not afraid to point out his faults and laugh at them and not just laugh at them, but just let them be there's no shame I think there's so much of of professionalism and the more neurotypical culture of you know putting your best self out there and, and not showing in quotes unprofessional behavior and I say that because what is professional behavior because some of us can't live up to that standard and so it's really questioning where these these cultural and societal views of behavior come from and how important really are they when, What really should matter is having a safe and supportive work environment for everyone. So, and I I think this will help people with mental health struggles as well. I do think there is an element of it's leading by example. So if you can call out your own struggles, then other people feel safer saying, I struggle with this, because if it's a culture of just putting your best foot forward and only showing all the best parts of you, which isn't always a choice for some of us, then those of us with the struggle will just continually try and hide for safety, which has really negative flow-on effects. So yeah, I guess the going back to the environment that I worked in that was positive, my boss was very open about her differences and she, as far as I know, was neurotypical, who knows, um, but she spoke quite slowly. Which for me, as someone with ADHD combined, I can't stand. My husband does it too, and I I can't help but finish sentences and cut people off, and it's like my excitability and all that. Uh, and and she could have easily done what many people have done to me in my life and get very frustrated by that, because she was an exceptionally slow talker. She just she was a very relaxed, chilled person, which is great. I wish I could be like that. I am wound wound tight, twenty four seven, but she didn't her approach to that was she just let me be and 90% of the time I guessed correctly and she wouldn't even stop or show any sign of annoyance she'd just move on to what she was continually like wanting to get to next and we actually ended up making quite a good team because we'd play off each other Uh, and there were other things that she struggled with like so she was really good at concepts and strategic thinking but she wasn't great at wanting to like see like put that down and and make that into a tangible plan so then I came in and would help her do that so what you're you're what
0: you're kind of referring to is is um you know what I've often thought about which is playing to strengths but also there's almost there's almost a a great team-based activity around understanding each other's cognitive preferences right cognitive processing preferences yes which yes which I think um I think has a really interesting place in this dialogue. Yeah. Um because in in actual fact, um we all have different um cognitive preferences. We might not know what they are um because we've never probably thought about it, but but we all have our own cognitive preferences and um you know, I think that's a really I almost think that's a really good part to start the you know, a place to start the conversation within within a team-based environment is, you know, let's actually share a little bit about how we just prefer to work, how we how we how we tend to um, process information, where you know, where is it that you know, we have some strength, where where is it that we have um, you know Less strength. <laughs> some areas that, less strength, I didn't want to say weaknesses. And, and you obviously saying that I didn't want to say weaknesses. But but it, but again, you don't, you know, this doesn't need to be about neurodiversity. This is just about cognitive differences and the way that different people like to think. And the fact that, you know, some people are more about connection and, and you know, I don't know, get get their spark and get their energy from being around people. Other people get their energy by being able to, and, and their uh, their stimulation, I guess, from being, you know, being able to um, analyse data as another example, you know, to take two kind of stereotypical examples, but, you know, at least they're relatable. So th- that's a really interesting um, place, I think, to start this kind of concept of, of how people um, have this default preference on how they think and what they do, and 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 therefore what their work output may look like mm. when they're best when they're at their best to work. So, you know, um, some people are morning people, some people are evening people. But you know, I think that's a really interesting and practical conversation that teams can have around. Let's just better understand how we all think and 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 process, and 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 so you're looking at the team. You're not. You're not singling anyone out. You're not you're not focusing on any specific, but you're actually you know you're opening the door to have a conversation and, and appreciate where you can get the best out of people because that's just their natural tendency and preference and strength. So, you know, again, I think there's a there's a different way you can talk about and you can approach um, and you can engage people around this conversation around cognitive diversity that you know that that means you can actually start to implement and be much more practical around it.
1: Um, Even now, when I say, you know, I'd I'd like this adjustment or, you know, this would help me work better. My current team who are great have never outwardly said, why do you need that? But, and I don't know how much this is just (laughs) how I see the world, but I, I feel a sense of pressure to justify anything I ask for. And, and that, leads me to needing to go back to that pathology and back to that deficits focus of, you know, I need to work from home because I find office environments very distracting and sensory overload. Like, why do I have to say why I need to do it? And I know, I obviously know why you have to say why, because you don't want everyone to just ask for all the adjustments in the world and not really know who truly needs it and who doesn't. I get that. But at the same time, making me justify it is exactly the reason why it's hard to ask in the first place, because there's always that fear of how much do I have to justify this and share?
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though. It's interesting you say that because one part of me listening to you is like, it would actually be really great to understand the why. So, as part of an education process, right? So that's from where I sit that that becomes part of the education process. But, but, but on the other hand, I totally appreciate that you are being expected to share and be vulnerable about something that is very personal. I was thinking about this the other day. And, um, so I, am a mum of two, um, kind of mid to late teens now, but when I was going through my pregnancies and, and, um, I was, um, freelancing for a number of years, um, as a working mum, I was asking for accommodations years ago, right?
1: Yep, bet you were. So
0: mm-hmm, the concept of accommodations actually has been around for a while, people, and uh, yep. and and you know it's it's come a long way because you know I've certainly um, and I'm not at all saying that I've experienced what you have, but but I was thinking about this the other day because I think. I think we forget (laughs) that working parents have been asking for accommodations for a while and it's been hard and it's been a struggle, I think, and it's been, you know, a much more readily accepted um, part of of work now, I think, particularly post-COVID. But, you know, the number of times that I kind of thought I'm not going to be able to ask, I can't ask, what are they going to think that I, you know, can't do the work, I can't cope with the workload, I can't. So again, I'm
1: not, you know. Oh, don't worry, we're not comparing. It's it's still a, it's a real same. struggle.
0: It's not a competition and it's not a compare. But I, but I did want to try and bring an element of this kind of concept of accommodation back to the fact that this kind of universal design concept and also, you know, it, it just hit me like a brick the other day that I, you know, I have actually in my career journey have, have been in a position where I've asked for accommodations and have sometimes felt comfortable, sometimes not, probably could have asked for them earlier had I felt more comfortable. But the concept of accommodations is not, it's not new. It's not new. It it shouldn't be something that we all of a sudden have to sit up and take notice yeah. of because in actual <laughs> fact there's um quite a number of us that have been seeking some kind of accommodation for you know different reasons over the last you know god knows how many decades mm-hmm. so yeah it's all very interesting definitely yeah.
1: it's, it's humanity it's definitely definitely a real thing for carers for people with disabilities everyone everyone has an element of or everyone has a point In their life even if it's not anything to do with being a minority or everyone will have some point in their life where they need accommodations from work whether it's an illness or an injury or a disability that you know came on and wasn't there from the start anything like people will have needs and if we're in if we're creating a workforce that's that's flexible truly flexible and open to these things everyone's mental health will benefit productivity will skyrocket there's a thousands reasons why this is a good thing for everyone
0: and I think this comes back to where this conversation first started which was around yeah, full um it, it did it's yeah well done you've, you've brought yeah us yeah we did circle. we did well <laughs> um, yeah you know it's where this all started around not knowing what we don't know as well and um education being key and Self advocating, but also allyship, and how that's got to be a partnership. Um, you know, and, and the fact that you know, th- there are so many more conversations and learning to have in the space, but starting the dialogue is really important.
1: Yes, they need to keep happening.
0: Well, yeah, and I think
1: mm.
0: you know, I, I think to your point about um, neurodiversity paradigm is again because the language and the terminology is just so fascinating. It really is. But I, I guess also the other point I was going to make was, as with everything in life, there's there's a reality check that we need to do and there's just, um, there is a balance between, you know, let's make sure that we're having the conversations in an authentic way. Let's make sure we're involving the right people in the conversations. Let's make sure we're thinking about what the impacts of that conversation are and I guess this is where the kind of change management method side, you know, comes into play when I think about it is, you know, um, it's taking all of the really important subject matter expertise that we have in this space. And that, that subject matter expertise, to be honest with you, from, from where I sit, lives fairly squarely in the neurodivergent community.
1: I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) But, well,
0: we've got to to keep calling it out, you know, I think.
1: As with every community, lived experience is is so important. Correct.
0: But, you know, what I see is the power of a partnership between, um, you know, lived experience and observed and, and, and allyship. It's kind of, you know... It is a really powerful partnership if we can have the conversations in the right way with the right people and we can be um, really practical and we can understand and lean into the challenges around implementation and what it will need to shift the dial. So, but again, you know, coming back to it, we've got so much opportunity ahead of us. We just need to keep educating and keep talking about it. So I think, you know, again,
1: that's... Yeah, stay curious. Stay curious.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: We are very much aligned and uh, I just appreciate your authenticity today. Thank you, Nat, for having this important discussion about allyship and how we can all work together to progress change. It's been awesome.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I say, um, you know, I feel quite, I've said this a number of times, but I'm always amazed at the level of openness and, and generosity of time that I that I've seen come my way as I've reached out to people who you know um, who have given so much of their ideas and their thoughts and and just shared you know their stories. So I say thank you right back.
1: Well, that's it for number ten. And along the lines of what we were talking about today, in terms of being able to advocate for your preferences at work, I have borrowed the wisdom from the marvellous Amanda Morin from episode six and seven, who has helped me to develop a worksheet for you guys. And it's called the employee productivity profile. If any of you listened to my chat with Amanda a few weeks ago, you'll know that she has a beautiful way with words and being able to ask for your needs to be met in a positive way or even just a neutral way one of my goals in developing this podcast for the neurodivergent community is to collaborate with some incredible minds and make some really practical resources. So head over to the show notes and visit my Patreon. And if you become a member, you will get access to this awesome worksheet. So a big thank you to Amanda Morin for collaborating on this incredible document that I could only dream of when I was starting my own career. And I really hope that it comes in handy to some of my neurokin who are really wanting some help on how to identify their needs to be productive at work. Stay tuned for our next episode talking to the wonderful Francis Brennan, who is a neurodivergent speech pathologist. And we're going to talk all about being a neurodivergent allied health professional, speech therapy, and some exciting stuff on eating disorders. Just warming you up because if you didn't know, on the 11th of August, our very first episode of the brand new NeuroSpiced, capital E-D on the end, podcast from Edna, Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, is going to be released and I thought to warm you all up we could talk a little bit about eating disorders on here. If you didn't know I have lived experience with eating disorders and when I started advocating about it a few months ago at the start of this year I had many, 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 many neurodivergent people coming to me saying they also were suffering with eating disorders or had suffered and so I pulled a bunch of awesome people together and we started a not-for-profit and even in the very short time that it's been up and running, we've already had such a huge impact and I'm so pleased to say we've been welcomed with open arms by the eating disorder community and it's all very exciting. And don't forget if you like what you hear and you want more, please share this with your friends and spread the word of neurodivergent joy and give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, connect with us on social media and let us know what the topic's or people you want to hear from. We are already well into recording season two, which is very exciting. And I've got some more incredible guests on the way. So I hope you enjoy and thank you for all your support. See you next time and stay spicy. Yes, I'm a dork. You love it.